You stand on the shore of the ocean watching the tide come in. You sense the call of the sea beckoning to take you further. You step forward little by little, not knowing what to expect, but expecting more. You keep going as the ocean calls, calls you to enter in to deeper waters. Hello everyone, this is Nick Peters, and the format of today's episode is going to be a little bit different, because, like I've said, this is pretty much just me with recording equipment and the headphones in the studio. Now, I do have a sound editor who does that work for me, and he's excellent, does everything volunteer and such, so he's putting things all together, and if the sound quality past few months have the show has seemed a lot better to you, it's because of him. But I've got my guest, Jason Georges, with me, and I just want to let everyone know that he was on here earlier this year on, I believe it was April 29th, and we had so many technical difficulties with Skype crashing on us regularly that we just gave up after a while. But we do have some recording of that, so... My sound editor is going to put that together, so the format of this might be a little bit different. Now, also in that clip, you would have heard me saying that Greg Coker would be our next guest, but if you've been listening to a show, you know we've already had Greg Coker on, so I'll go ahead and let everyone know that next week, Seth Ehorn is going to be my guest. He's out of Wheaton. We're going to be talking about his work that he's done on composite quotations in the New Testament. And today, we're actually talking about what is uh, one of my favorite topics to talk about with regards to the Bible. And it's one that's very neglected in many ways. And that is the topic of honor and shame in the Bible. And so many times when I'm with other Christians who are trying to talk about Bible passages and hearing sermons, and when I start thinking about the passage through the lens of honor and shame, I'm thinking... Ooh, I'm sorry, but if I could just let you know, you are really misinterpreting this passage right now. Because we all have a tendency to read our own culture into the Bible, instead of finding out what the culture of the Bible itself was like. Now, in order to discuss this topic, I've brought on Jason Georges. He's a co-author of the book, Ministering in Honor Shame Cultures. He is the founding editor and primary blogger of honorshame.com. His family served in Central Asia, Asia for nine years doing disciple-making, church planting, and micro-enterprise development. He's also got an MDiv from Talbot, by the way. He's un- understanding honor-shame dynamics has helped him to navigate relationships, share the gospel, seize kingdom opportunities, and more deeply experience God's grace. His current role is missiologist in residence at an evangelical mission organization, focusing on developing resources, and leading practical training workshops. So, um, Jason, welcome to the Deeper Waters podcast. Why, thank you, Nick, for having me. Well, if my audience doesn't know who you are, tell us a bit about how you got to be doing what you're doing. Yeah, well, um, this really started when my family and I served in Central Asia. We're doing cross-cultural ministry there. 
I myself am from the States. Uh, I grew up in the state of Nevada on a farm, a very white community. So I joke that, you know, I'm kind of the, the essence of white bread when it comes to culturally, uh, very monocultural. Um, I do, it, I always loved engaging with people of other cultures, um, but it really wasn't until I got to Central Asia um, that I understood how vastly different Western culture is compared to most other cultures in the world. So our Central Asian context, it was a mix between kind of a, had an Asian influence and a Muslim influence, and it was also a post-Soviet country as well. And it was, um, you know, we learned language there, started connecting with people, especially younger students. I was in my 20s at the time. And um, I, I had gone to Bible school and I had gone to seminary. And, as I, and so I felt like I had a good grasp of scripture and theology. But it, as I was communicating theology or communicating the gospel to unbelievers in Central Asia, it, it was like two plus two did not equal four to them. Um, somehow my logic or what I was saying just wasn't uh, resonating. And then we also worked with the local church community there. And I noticed that time and time again, um, kind of the operating system that really governed people's um, decision-making and their worldview and their values was much more centered around honor and shame than what was familiar to me. And so one example of this was I remember in our first several months, we had um, a young lady coming over to our house to study scripture with my wife. And um, she would they're reading through the Gospel of John like a chapter every week. And she actually was coming with a friend as well. Um, and she was very interested and in wanting to learn more, and you can tell that God was really, you know, sh- showing Himself to her. Well, she came over one week and returned the Bible to my wife and said, "Well, people in our community in our neighborhood here have found out that I'm coming over to your house, and so they're all gossiping about my parents." And so now my dad told me that I cannot come over to your house to study the Bible with you um, because that is affecting what all of the neighbors think about us. And I heard that and I was like, wow, that is it. It was really offensive to me at first that this person didn't have the individual right to do what she wanted to, that her parents were going to control her that much. Um, You you probably kind of start thinking, aren't you supposed to be your own person and march to the beat of your own drummer and such? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So it was kind of one instance after another like this, Nick, that started to think like, okay, you know, we need to figure out this idea of honor and shame. And so I still remember, this is about seven, eight years ago, I looked in the concordance of my Bible and I um, was thinking, gosh, I wonder if the Bible says anything about honor and shame. And so I know, funny, right? Yes. Um, so you can tell where this journey has gone since then and you can uh, guess what the answer to that question was. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was just through that, that sure enough, I remember looking in Isaiah, um, the second part of Isaiah and seeing lots there. Um, and we started to realize like, wait a second, the gospel really does address honor shame cultures. And it was interesting that um, there's actually quite a bit of New Testament scholarship, like Molina Nere de Silva, who writes about honor and shame. And it was actually through their writings that I started to understand honor shame culture even more. Um, and so one thing led to another, and I started reading scripture with local believers, asking them for their insight. 
clients and they're pointing out these honor shame elements to me that were you know new and fresh and so from there is really our ministry team started to reformulate okay how do we communicate the gospel how do we disciple believers and how do we do business you know how do we um, do business development in this context in light of honor and shame um, so it's really a journey since then um, there in Central Asia to unpack that that's um, kind of what I call an honor shame missiology is what is the gospel for you know honor shame context, but the last um, three four years I've had the um, joy of being back here in the states um, where I have been developing the idea a little bit more, especially for um, you know the Great Commission community, those people in the West who are really engaged cross culturally and trying to help popularize the idea of honor and shame within Christian theology and cross cultural ministry. Yeah. And, you know, when you talk about the whole thing about uh, looking in the Bible and seeing what it says, I've uh, told people before that, you know, we live in a, this guilt-innocence culture. But, and one of the main books we're turning to is the book of Romans in dealing with this. Romans doesn't say a single thing about guilt and innocence, but it sure says a few <laughs> things about honor and shame. For sure. Yeah, it's interesting that um, even the whole idea of forgiveness, you know, obviously guilt and innocence doesn't appear. And um, the word forgiveness only appears once in Romans chapter 3. And even that's just kind of a um, offhanded citation from a psalm that Paul pulls in in that list. Um, and so it, it's interesting, well, we assume that the book of Romans is about individual forgiveness, but Paul only talks about that once. Um so, but you're right, there's a lot more honor-shame dynamics um, than what we often think. Yeah, I, I'm sure you've had these experiences like I have, where you've been in a church hearing a preacher give a sermon, and on the face of it to most everyone else, it seems like it's a pretty good sermon. Heck, a whole lot of other seminary-trained people would probably think this is a pretty good sermon. But when you hear it through honor and shame thinking, you think, I'm sorry, you're missing something here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, for sure it does happen. And at the same time, try to be gracious because I realize, you know, if I hadn't had the opportunity to live overseas for those nine years, um, I'm I just don't think I would have gotten it because living in the West, we only know what we know. We only know our own culture. Um, so, um, but yeah, fortunately, I think there are resources and tools that do kind of unpack the idea so people can learn about it. Yeah. I think that too often, even some people could say that, well, I never plan on going to Asia or any or the Middle East or any place like that. And a lot of people probably don't. So I probably don't need to understand this stuff as much. But if you have neighbors that are Far Eastern or Middle Eastern and such, even if they're over here, they still probably think largely in terms of honor and shame. And you could be committing some serious social sins around them and not even realizing it. Yes, for sure. I mean, I think the stat is there's like 45 million foreign-born people in America right now. So what's that, about 15% of the population? So yeah, I mean, I say it's not just to fulfill the Great Commission, but now you have to understand honor and shame just to fulfill the Great Commandment. Because so often our neighbor, for example, I live in um, you know Atlanta, Georgia now, and we have uh, our neighbor across the streets from Ethiopia, and then one neighbor right next to us is from uh, Malaysia, and then another neighbor is a you know a white Caucasian family. But you're right; just to engage with them, honor shame dynamics is very helpful. 
And then I also like to point out, even if you don't think you're ever going to cross the culture and don't need to know about honor-shame cultures, well, anytime you open up your Bible to read your Bible, you're crossing cultures. Now, you might not realize it because, it, you know, you don't experience different food and different, you know, a different language and different smells, but that was primarily that, – that book was written in a different sociocultural context and – uh, in so many ways, we forget about that because scriptures become so tamed um, often in Western Christianity. Yeah, I agree. And we, for anyone's interest, we have had some other people come on to talk about this kind of thing. Uh, Jackson Wu has been on the show before. Warner Mischke has been on the show. And Randy Richards has been on the show. And Ben Witherington and all of these people have some great insights on honor and shame in the Bible. Yeah, fortunately, you know, there are lots of voices out there. All those guys you mentioned are definitely very, very prominent, you know, uh, scholars in this area. So, what was it that, what is it that you think we would really define an honor and shame culture in contrast to our culture? Yeah, I think the biggest thing is, um, you know, it really comes down to the basic question of what is a human being? What makes me, me? Um, You know, what is it if you take that away from me, I'm no longer a human. In the West, we're going to define the human much more individualistically. And so I am who I am. So I'm defined by my rights and my freedoms. So if you take away my my ability to say what I want, to express myself how I want, to think how I want, then I'm no longer truly human. But in other, you know, honor-shame cultures, identity is based much more on the collective, on the group. And so you know, you ask someone who they are, well, they tell you, you know, their last name or your father's name, or they tell you what part, what tribe that they are a part of. Why? Well, it's because it, they don't feel like the human being is defined by rights and freedoms, but by a sense of honor and belonging within the group. So if you take away that sense of honor from them, then, well, you've pretty much said they're not a human, they're more like a dog or a donkey. Um, because all of a sudden, you know, you've made them an animal by taking away their human. They feel like dirt. They feel like nothing. And so that's why it's so prominent in honor-shame cultures. You know, it's better to die with honor than it is to live with shame. And so you often get things like honor suicides or honor killings. That's because it, in certain, you know, sometimes so, social circumstances conspire to take away someone's honor. And when their back is against the wall, the the only answer is just to take away life itself because honor is so central. And if you can't have that in life, then it's simply not worth living life. Yeah, Um, yeah, we've had uh, some shows on Islam, for instance, and I think a lot of people really will not understand ISIS, for instance, until they understand honor and shame. It's nothing, you know, if we go over there and we're nice and friendly to them and love them the way (laughs) that we want to be loved... They'll repent in sackcloth and ashes. Well, they won't, will they? Mm-hmm. No, yeah, it's really interesting. Um, I have looked through uh, some of the ISIS literature. They actually produce quite a bit of you know, propaganda recruitment literature. Um, and so I've looked through it on the web, and they make great English translations of it. And it, I must say, it is pretty morbid. It's not very light reading at all. But it's interesting to see how strongly they appeal to a sense of honor, or I should say, they appeal to the disgrace that Muslims feel on the international arena and how much they promise a sense of honor through their call 
caliphate or through their you know Islamic government, and it it really is central. Essentially, they are promising a new kingdom in which. Muslims are going to be able to lift up their head and erase all of their shame, and they're going to be able to experience, you know, a true sense of dignity. Uh, so for sure, yeah, you're right. Even stuff like ISIS or you know Muslim terrorists, um, it's really often rooted in these honor shame dynamics. Yeah, I think one other thing is that often in honor shame cultures, but maybe let me contrast with ours first. That we look to our internal selves. We look to how we feel about ourselves and such. I mean, when we have those things like, listen to your heart, let your conscience be your guide. If you go over to an honor shame culture and start saying that, they are looking at, what what are you talking about? What is this internalization thing and such? Yeah. Yeah, the whole idea of the um, introspective conscience has really developed in Western um you know, Western psychology and Western civilization, um, where, you know, I, I even think I have three children. And it's really interesting. I noticed how much we, I, uh, as, you know, an American parent, it's just inwired into me to teach my children how to be independent, how to think for themselves. Um, but uh, you're right. It in honor shame cultures, children are taught much more how to have a concern for what other people actually think, and what is right and wrong is actually what brings honor to the family. So, for example, when we lived in Central Asia, we spoke uh, Russian, and the way that parents would, um, you know, discipline children, say, you know, you have a three-year-old who's doing something wrong, the parent would say "etnikrasiva," which means literally "that's not pretty" or "that's not beautiful." And what that is, what that means is other people are looking at you and that doesn't look pleasant in their eyes, therefore you should change your behavior. So I always thought that was interesting, you know, why would a parent say that? That doesn't, you know, just to say that's not beautiful, whereas I tell my children that's wrong, right? But they would say that's not beautiful. So very subtle things like that, you know, are we focused on morality as a purely internal thing or more as an external thing? And interestingly, in scripture, it it actually is a both-and thing. Um, So... I mean, there's this difference in our culture that we look and say that how we feel about the situation is what matters most. And I like to tell you that the locus of your identity in our kind of culture, it lies within ourselves. But in those cultures, it lies outside of you. What matters not is what you think of yourself. It's what matters most is what do other people think of you? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and who are you connected with? You know, what are your connections? What are your relationships? What's your family name? Because that's really what uh, how people get defined. And so, because that your network of relationships defines you, so much of life is really about establishing and preserving those close relationships. And so, I would say, you know, in the West, the main goal of humans is kind of you know fulfillment or satisfaction or. Um, yeah, kind of that sense of individual fulfillment. Uh, whereas in an honor shame culture, uh, people are always looking to create connections and create relationships with people through gifts, through eating meals together, um, or a variety of other things. Yeah. In our cultures, uniqueness can be seen as a good thing, standing out from the crowd. Yeah. In their cultures, uniqueness is a bad thing. You want to blend in as much as you can. Yeah, for sure. 
Yeah, that's another um, interesting one. I mean, I think in terms of clothing, how this plays out, you know, in our culture, if I show up to work, you know, wearing the same shirt as someone else, you know, other people kind of, you know, it's not like it's completely shameful, but other people will point it out, right? It's definitely a little humorous, like you shouldn't do that. And that's why you go in a store and you have a choice of a thousand shirts, right? Um, And so, but in Central Asia, it was always very fascinating to me that people um, would always wear the same exact type of clothing based on, you know, if you tell me someone's gender and what age they were, I could tell you pretty much, you know, exactly what type of clothes they would be wearing. And often it was like identical. Um, And so in my book, I talk about how humorous my wife and I thought that, you know, uh, every middle-aged woman of one ethnic group in Central Asia has the same exact type of hand-knit sweater with a large peacock on the back of it. Um, but so uniformity is very important because that conveys or that communicates what group you're a part of and what your broader social community is. In, in some ways, I mean, honor and shame is unescapable even in our cultures. Because what you're describing it kind of reminds me also of, say, the gang culture, right? You have to wear the right clothes to show that you are a part of the gang. That as much as we try and be individualistic, we can still have honor and shame being written into us. Yeah, for sure. And that that's a great point with that, Nick. I mean, I think it's a good reminder that... You know, honor shame cultures are not just, you know, Arab cultures or Asian cultures, but really, I mean, to some degree, all cultures are honor shame cultures because that issue goes back to the fall. It goes back to Adam and Eve, right? They were, you know, created without shame and then they hid and covered themselves after the sin. So it's because of our, you know, our first ancestors, Adam and Eve, that we humans feel shame and desire a sense of honor. Mm-hmm. And so, um, but the difference is, you know, how it, in every culture that pull or the the impact of honor and shame is going to be different. Obviously, it's going to be much more in, say, uh, in Asian context than it is in a Western context. Um, but you are right. So in the West, it does appear in different pockets like that. You mentioned gang culture. That's a good one. Um, I think of dorm life, you know, college life in terms of dorms and sororities is another example. Sports teams as well. Um, you see that dynamic come out. Really, anywhere there is a strong sense of cohesion or a group, um, that group group is going to use honor shame dynamics they're going to use a person's reputation as the primary moral um kind of the moral value or the moral force for sanctioning behavior or for regulating behavior within the group when i heard jackson Wu speak at ets i believe back in 2015 he said in fact also facebook is another example of honor and shame because it sure means a lot to someone when you put up a status and people like it and share it and talk about you on there. Because I mean, I'm not everyone, as much as we all want to talk about being independent many times, everyone really likes it when people talk well about them and really doesn't like it when people talk negatively about them. Yeah, for sure. I mean, all humans want to be connected with other people. We all want to be in relationship, right? That That's kind of what it means to be human. That's how God created all of us. Um, so for sure, that's hardwired into each of us. I would say the difference is kind of 
because of economic systems in the West, it's possible for a person to live independently. You know, you can go to college, get a degree and get a job and live by yourself in your own apartment. And so it's possible to be much more independent in the West. But um, in other cultures, just to survive on a daily basis, you have to be a part of the group, you know, to get into the college and then to get a job. And, you know, you have to have the right connections in the right place um, for life to work out for you. And we can still place a great emphasis on connections in our culture, like you were saying, that mm-hmm. sometimes we still have to say it's not what you know, it's who you know. But if you know the right person, you can get some benefits. Uh, this past Monday, my brother-in-law had his birthday, <clears throat> and mm-hmm. his favorite restaurant is Texas Roadhouse. Well, we had some neighbors here we got to know very well before they moved. And they manage a Texas Roadhouse, and they used to manage that very one. So I got in touch with them and said, hey, is there anything that we can do for my brother-in-law's birthday? I didn't know. I mean, figured, hey, what do we got to lose? Yeah. Turns out my in-laws got very surprised when they got there and the check came and said, oh, by the way, you're getting a 30% employee discount. Wow. <laughs> Yeah, for sure. I mean, it it is you're right. It it is a good reminder that who you know does matter. Um I mean, I think the political scene in America works that way. The business scene works that way. You know, you hear these stats that 80% of all jobs are found you know, people hire through a connection or some sort of acquaintance. Um so, yeah, I mean, that's just kind of human nature. That's how we are wired. Um, so that is important. And it's just, it, it's never an either or black or white issue, but it's much more of a gray scale, you know, where are you on the broader spectrum? Um, so yeah, that affects things in America. But in uh, in America, for example, if you want to get a permit to add some, you know, add a room onto your house, it's a rather anonymous transaction. You know, you can go down the government office, you apply for it, and if you meet the code, you get it. Um, but in uh, in Central Asia, you you would never even dare possibly think about doing that unless you went down there with someone who had a friend who worked in the office, um, or else you're just going to be badgered for bribes and they'll drag their feet and different things. Um, so. Uh, I think you even mentioned in your book about getting pulled over by a police officer one time. And the way you handle that different <laughs> is very different in that culture than it is in ours. Yeah. So I would get pulled over, you know, um, speeding tickets were never much. It was like 2 $3. You just paid it there on the spot. But it's always the principle that really bothered me, right? And so I'd be so upset at these guys, and I'd write down you know, their name and ask them what I did wrong. And I would try to argue that I was not guilty, that how I, I, you know, I was innocent before the law. And those guys, it, I always got a blank stare from them, and it never worked. And they would still write me the ticket. Well, one time I was sitting there arguing with the policeman on the side of the road, and he pulls over. You know, they they just stand there pulling over people can, rapidly, and he pulled someone over who just opened up the door and mentioned his name, and the police apologized to him for bothering him, and then he just drove on. And I was like, well, what in the world is going on? Well, what I came to realize is that who you are, as you mentioned, is actually more important than what you did, and that's probably – you know, another way of summarizing these cultural differences in terms of who versus what. And so I started to reframe my approach during those encounters. Again, I don't want this to be a podcast on how to, 
you know, evade Central Asian police tickets. Um, but I just uh, reframed it in terms of, you know, who I was. So I had a California driver's license. I would give it to him. And, uh, you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger was the governor at the time. And that was all great. Uh, he'd talk about, you know, Hollywood. And then we owned a weight gym as well. Um in the community. So I'd always invite them over to the gym or to my house for tea. And I just created a connection with him in explaining who I was. We didn't even talk about my driving, but when he understood who I was as a foreigner, as someone from California, someone in the community there, um, things were much different and um, it it made it much different uh, type of relationship in that situation. And um, perhaps shamefully, <laughs> I can say that it was much more successful in, man- in uh, arguing my case and getting out of the situation. And it's important to know in each of these cases that whenever you're talking with anyone of these cultures, you want to make sure that you're doing everything you can to uphold the honor of a person that you're talking to. Because no matter who they're talking to, in a sense, their reputation is on the line every time, isn't it? Yeah, it is. So what I would do in that situation is I would try to honor them. And, you know, uh, hospitality is a big part of that. They're very proud of how hospitable they are in their country. And so I would say, oh, you know, I'm a foreigner in my country. You know, could you help me out uh, with understand? Would you please forgive me? You're so hospitable. Could you welcome me, um, you know, and have, you know, you know, be hospitable towards me by forgiving me in this situation. And sure enough, that appeal to hospitality or the reputation for that, um, her, um, yeah, often worked. It made sense to them. It was much more logical or intuitive in their mind than trying to argue a sense of legal innocence to them. Yeah, and I think many of us over here can even understand this point because when you come to someone, you want to treat them as not necessarily independent, but still capable of things and such. I, I can imagine, I mean, this is the kind of thing that I think men get into, especially like if they're driving. I don't need to pull over and ask for directions and such. <laughs> or in my own marriage, I'm not a strong guy at all. I weigh about 120 pounds, but if we get groceries, by God, I'm normally carrying them all up there on one trip. No matter how many bags they are, because by God, I am the man here, and I will be the man, and I'm going to demonstrate it. And that, that might sound like a silly example for us, but that really is a real ex- instance of the way they think over there, isn't it? Yeah, it, it, it does play out uh, in that sense. You're right. Uh, you know, there's no rule or there's no policy that states, you know, how many trips you should uh, take to bring the groceries in the house, obviously. Um, so what determines your behavior in that situation? It's a sense of reputation. Um, and you're right. Um, in many cultures of the world, you know, you gave a really small example, but that really gets magnified on a larger scale. You know, even on the on the levels of countries, for example, I think diplomacy is often so important in terms of being sure to give face, you know, to other leaders and different things and situations. Yeah. So when you asked about, about having someone over to your home is that hospitality is an incredibly huge deal in honor shame cultures. And you talk about how Jesus sends his disciples out two by two and such. And the whole thing is people will take care of you on the way and such and you'll be staying at someone's house I mean we can you can walk into a Middle Eastern man's house and say oh my lord I am so honored to have you here everything I have in this house is yours take it as you will 
And most of us would like to say, but is this guy just nuts or what? And the, <laughs> no, he's really practicing hospitality. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. It's interesting how often a person's reputation is attached to their hospitality and their their generosity, their willingness to share all of their resources with other people. And so it's interesting because when we were in Central Asia, um, we would often have you know uh, some short term trips come over or uh, Western guests come over, and we would. L- we would love to um, have some of our local Central Asian friends host them for an evening. And inevitably, um, our, our Western friends who went over as guests were simply blown away by the generosity. You know, just kind of the line, well, they have so little, but they gave so much. Um, in their minds, it, it's a no-brainer. And a lot of it is kind of saving you know, that's how they save or that's how they build up equity. You think about in the West, when we have extra money, we put it in the bank and we're confident that it'll be there in the future. Well, I learned in Central Asia that people really don't have much, um, you know, much confidence in the economic or the banking system. So when they have extra money or extra resources, they share that with other people. Well, because of the cultural dynamic of reciprocity, everyone knows who owes who. So if I gave you something, Nick, you know, if I if I invited you over and gave you a meal and sent you home with, you know, five pounds of beef, then, you know, a few years later when I'm hungry and you have resources, we all both remember that and we take care of each other. And so really hospitality and generosity um, kind of works as like the, I call it, you know, instead of financial equity, people build up social equity or social capital um, in their relationships with one another. Um, and so interestingly, people would share quite a bit. And it's always really hard for Westerners to receive that much, to be a guest who receives such generosity. You know, we want to be independent and say, oh, that's fine. I don't need that. But interestingly, that is actually quite offensive because that's like saying, you have nothing to give me. You know, you're of a different class than me. I can live independently of you. And so um, I say it's kind of ironic, but one of the greatest ways that you can honor someone else is to receive the honor that they're trying to give you, is to receive their hospitality and their generosity, because that indicates to them that you that they have an honor that uh, you need and you're willing to receive from them. And that creates a, you know, a rich bond and reciprocal relationship. Yeah, I've uh, surprised some people when I've uh, told them that when we look at the favorite verse, usually for Christian apologists, the first Peter 3.15 about uh, <laughs> and such, uh-huh. like, you know, like it. But if everyone an answer for a reason that the hope that lies within you, and I said, actually, this verse isn't about apologetics at all. Because in the culture it's going on, it was like, kind of like, I, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. And if someone did something nice for you, it wasn't just generosity. It was always, there is a catch to this somewhere. And we want to know what it is. So people go to these Christians like, why are you doing this stuff for us? What, what's your motive? What's your catch? What do you hope to gain out of it? And the yes. answer you give, it's not, well... Jesus died, and he was seen by multiple people alive again, which proves that he's a resurrected Lord, and you need to turn him for repentance. That's not what they were saying. They were saying, we do this because Jesus did this for us, and we are extending his grace to you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 
Yeah, that verse, uh, 1 Peter 3.15, it's interesting. You know, we talk about reading it in context. You know, obviously you're talking about the cultural context, but the literary context, the phrase right before says, in your hearts, honor Christ as Lord. And the phrase right after it, it says, keep your conscience clear so that when you are maligned or, you know, when the, when the unbelievers try to shame you and speak badly about you, those who abuse you for your good conduct in Christ will be put to shame. And so you already, you know, that verse is sandwiched between this language of, you know, honoring Christ as Lord and having a good reputation so that those who malign you will be put to shame themselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I've sometimes wondered how where Ari and I could function over in this kind of culture. Because on some parts, I think we'd excel. Because Ari and I both have Asperger's. We're both on the spectrum. And we naturally, I think, speak in terms of loyalty. If you do something good to us, we remember it well, and we repay you. And usually, the way you are in our minds is based on the last time you interacted with us. And that stays with us and such. Now, at the same time, we're also incredibly finicky eaters. So I think we'd have a really hard time if we went to someone's house and they offered <laughs> us something to eat. And we'd, we'd have to say... I'm sorry, we, we, we can't do that because that person would be horribly offended then. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it is a challenge, but uh, fortunately, God gives much grace. Now, something else that's usually different about these cultures is the relationship. And this one, I don't think, was talked about as much in your book, which everyone needs to know is excellent, by the way. And that's the whole client-patron system. And... This is done off Rabbi Bible, and I, I, get, I find so many people get so lost in this kind of thing. It's like, where you go to the book of Judges, and God lets all these things happen to his people in there. I mean, why does he do this? And say, well, because Israel is God's client. Yahweh's client, and they have agreed to enter into a covenant relationship with him. And he says, if you abide by the covenant, you get the blessings. What you're pretty much telling that God should do is, hey, I'm going to give you the blessings regardless of what you do with a covenant or not. Yeah, for sure. The um, Yeah, the whole patron-client relationship is all throughout the Old Testament. I mean, it really structures the, the covenant, which is the central theological motif of the Old Testament, was essentially a patron-client relationship. Now, scholar Old Testament scholars sometimes use different language. They talk about a suzerain-vassal covenant or a suzerain-vassal treaty. Um, well, that's essentially a patron-client relationship. Um as well, but you you are right. That's all throughout the Old Testament, and uh, it's really the default economic system of honor shame cultures. So even in collectivistic societies today, it's not so much capitalism as it is patronage, patronage which defines uh, you know uh, economic exchanges between people, and so it's the default system for relationships and a patron client really. A patron-client relationship, very simply defined, is a reciprocal, asymmetrical relationship. So it is a genuine relationship between people. It's not just a short, a one-time exchange. But that relationship is asymmetrical or it's uneven. It's between people of two different social classes. And uh, not only that, but it's reciprocal. That means it's always cycling back. Um, and the way this works is that a patron is somebody who's affluent, 
or wealthy and has resources and therefore provides those resources, you know, is generous to other people, um, the client who receives. And because of reciprocity, the client has to return and has to repay that, you know, that gift or that object of some kind uh, back to the patron. But because they are a different social class, they cannot repay materially. They have to repay socially. So that means they repay with their loyalty or maybe, you know, if the patron is a politician, they repay with their votes or, um, you know, maybe they'll defend him in public. They'll walk around praising his name. Um, They will be very thankful and express their gratitude back to that person. So the patron gives material goods and the clients return social goods. In essence, they repay with honor uh, back to their patron. And when I talk to people about that kind of relationship, I like to tell them, you know, this is where biblical terminology really comes in. Because the loyalty that the client would show to a patron was actually known as pistis, which is what we (laughs) translate as faith. And the gift that the patron would give to the client was called carrots, which is what we translate as grapes. Yes. (laughs) Yes, you're opening up a can of worms here, Nick, Um, but have no fear because you're absolutely right on this. Um, And what's another interesting thing is that the word soteria, salvation, um, is also um, a word that denoted patronage in the ancient you know, in the ancient Greco-Roman culture. So let me read a very familiar verse to you and tell me if this, in light of patron-client relationships, this doesn't have a new meaning. For by grace... You have been saved through faith. Mm-hmm. Now that's really a cornerstone of Reformation theology, which is you know, which is great. I myself am a Protestant um, and affirm Reformation theology, uh, but I think we need to remember that this verse was written not in the context of you know the 15th 16th century medieval Europe, but it was written in a first century Greco-Roman culture where patron-client. Re- relationships dominated, and often that language of charis, pistis, and soteria um, was understood in light of patronage. And so it, it's really, um, when you start seeing this, you understand how um, the New Testament writers explained salvation in terms of patronage. Mm-hmm. And then he follows that up afterwards by we were created for good works, which and it makes sense to that, of course, Yahweh's blessed us through our loyalty. He's given us his favor, his grace, and our works are to serve him in response. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's, yeah, so that no one can boast or so that no one can claim their own honor or their own status, but it's always redirecting their praise back to the patron, back to God himself. And some people would be surprised with this because, you know, we hold so much to the, uh, to the good theology about who God is and such. By the way, I would like to let people know that next month sometime we are going to have Matthew Bates coming on and talk about his book, Salvation by Allegiance Alone. Which yes. is kind of similar to what you were talking about, but yeah. that we and I would definitely recommend that. And for yeah. all you hearers out there, I would say definitely tune into that podcast because that'll be a great one. Yeah, but we we uh, hear uh, all of it. We just talk about honor, and this is, I had to recap what I was saying there. Then we uh, we have this idea about who God is, and we 
hold of and metaphysical attributes and such. And it seems hideous, as some people say, that we can increase God's honor, but we actually can. Now, we don't mean the honor he has in being God. That doesn't change his honor and his identity. What we mean is we can increase his reputation to people who don't believe in him. Yes, for sure. Yeah, I think it's, um, you know, theologians throughout church history have talked about this a lot. You know, our point is to glorify God as human beings. Well, does that mean God is lacking glory or that he's, you know, deficient? Absolutely. No, it's not. The issue is not God's innate glory, but it's the reflection or the magnification or the experience of that glory. So, when we dishonor God, or when we shame God, as the Bible talks about at several points, it's not that he himself is actually worth less, it's that he's getting treated as being worth, you know, his full glory is not being recognized, and that really is, uh, you know, the essence of sin. And so, Jonathan Edwards talks about, um, you know, this issue, obviously, and, you know, the end for which God created the world, um, and distinguishes between God's in a honor and the, the honor which we give him. Um, and I think that helps us understand and, you know, starts explaining some of the theological dynamics of honor and shame that we'll talk about later. Yeah, I think it's the difference between ascribed honor and acquired honor, if I remember the terminology correctly. Yeah, yeah, that helps. is kind of a, you know, a different language set for explaining the same idea that God has honor in and of himself. He, uh, he um, you know, has... Has it? You know, he doesn't have to achieve it. it doesn't come from us, um, but he himself has it. I think it's very important when you talk about sin, for instance, because we can often see sin in our cultures. You know, you just you broke the rule pretty much, and it's kind of like this abstract law that's kind of hanging out there in space and such. But if you're in an honor shame culture, you didn't just break the rule; you damaged the relationship. Yeah, that's exactly it. You know, shame, or sorry, sin is not just breaking a rule or breaking a law, but sin is breaking a a covenant. And even more specifically, I would say, uh, I'm sorry, let me start over on that, Nick. Uh, Sin is not just breaking a rule, sin is breaking a relationship. And not just any type of relationship, but really a covenant relationship where there's expectations that we, you know, as people have been saved and people have received um, God's favor and his grace, are therefore expected to respond with thanks and gratitude and praise back to him. And therefore, when we don't do that, as Romans 1 talks about very clearly, when we don't acknowledge God as God, as the creator, as the savior, we therefore break the covenant, and that is really the essence of sin, the dishonoring God or the failure to glorify God. Yeah, I think for us in the West, the closest we can get to this understanding is marriage. That when you marry someone, certain behaviors are assumed and such. And in our case, I mean, answer is spared out, but for instance, adultery is off the table. Only one person is entitled to all the, the special benefits of that relationship. 
Yes, for sure. Yeah, it's a, a binding, it's a long-term relationship, and there's um, a clear expectation that you have each other's back uh, within that. Yeah, that's kind of the heart of the covenant relationship. And I think that's so clear in the Old Testament, you know, with Israel and Yahweh. But I think as Christians, um, we forget about that or we exclude that covenant dynamic when we read the New Testament. But I think we need to remember that the New Testament authors and um you know, the apostles would have also assumed that and brought brought that forward. And inherent in a covenant is honor-shame dynamics, the idea of mutually honoring one another. Mm-hmm. And in fact, that's exactly what happens in a marriage relationship. A husband is supposed to build up his wife and honor her, and she in turn builds up her husband and honors him. I mean, we could say if people would understand covenants, they have more best places to go start looking at their own marriage. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I think you're absolutely right on that. And it's interesting that, it, you know, the word covenant isn't used very much in modern English, but um, that might be the only place where it is uh, between a man and a woman, you know, in the marriage context. Mm-hmm. And I think this really brings home one of the main issues when we're doing evangelism in these kinds of cultures because we use the same kind of terminology many times that we use over here and it doesn't work because if you talk about just sin in the abstract they don't understand they don't understand this idea of forgiveness of just breaking a rule yeah, it can be quite challenging. Um, you know, this idea that you have done something wrong, you broke the law, therefore you must be punished by the judge um, in order for justice to really happen. Uh, I think as Western Christians, we forget how cultural that logic is. Um, sure, uh, you know, aspects of it might be found in places in Scripture, but that that legal metaphor or that courtroom metaphor isn't the only metaphor of um, salvation used throughout Scripture. And so I remember, you know, when I first arrived in Central Asia, that was kind of the common way I explained the gospel, but it really didn't make sense to people. It was confusing. And I realized part of the reason why is simply because the courtroom is so corrupt. This idea that, um, you know, the judge is going to, you know, uh, preserve justice in some sense just didn't make sense because judges often, you know, made decisions based on bribes or based on their, you know, connections with other people involved in the case. And so to say that God is a judge is to say like, you know, God, you know, God's essentially a corrupt crime boss. It didn't make any sense. So we need a different set of metaphors to explain things. Um, And yeah, that idea that God, uh, or yeah, that idea that we have sinned is simply doing something wrong. Um, You know, most people might understand that conceptually, but that's not their biggest problem in life. Their biggest problem in life is their sense of honor or the threat of shame that comes to them. And so I think as gospel bearers, helping unbelievers really understand the dynamic of who God is and how he's saving through Jesus, we need to help them realize that their biggest problem in life is not per se the shame they have in their community, but it's actually the shame that they have brought upon God's name and therefore, you know, the shame that they they are facing ultimately on Judgment Day because how they have dishonored their Heavenly Father. You know, that's something that needs to be brought home to us as well, because 
We can go to church services many times and hear about forgiveness, forgiveness, forgiveness. God forgives you for everything. But there are still many people are sitting up in pews, and they might not have thought about using it in this kind of terminology, but if they hear it, I think it matches. They say, yes, but I still feel shame for what I've done. I still relive the guilt of my past. And it, 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 it's something so many people bear. And it might not even be what they've done. It might be something that someone else has done wrong to them. And they still bear shame because yeah. of it. Yeah, I think that's so often the case. You know, we can understand that we are forgiven by God, but yet we still really hamper or feel hampered by that sense of shame. And I think, you know, a great verse for that is Job 10.15. You know, Job said, even if I am innocent, I cannot lift my head for I am full of shame and drowned in my affliction. And Job says, you know what, I, I am innocent in God's eyes, but yet there's something not right here. You know, I my face is covered with shame, and so I cannot lift my head to God. And so, you know, so often I think we, uh, that message of forgiveness of sins, I want to affirm it's right, it's true, it's biblical, it needs to be proclaimed. Um, but as we do that, we need to remember if that's the only aspect of salvation that we proclaim to people, then essentially we're proclaiming a one-dimensional uh, gospel that might be kind of flat. I like to say, you know, unless we proclaim how God overcomes our shame as well as our guilt, then we're only allowing God to save us with one hand. You know, by having a theology uh, in which shame and honor are completely absent, we're essentially keeping one hand tied behind God's back and limiting his salvation and limiting his power in our life to just that idea of forgiveness of sins, which is great and which is essential, um, but it's not complete. Uh, and it doesn't really uh, communicate the full work of Christ in our lives. Yeah, I'm thinking especially if you're talking with someone who might be for all intents and purposes, innocent of things, but let's say mm. abused as a child, yeah. especially. And even though they did nothing wrong, I mean, I'm not saying they're sinless, of course, they've sinned throughout their lives, but they did nothing wrong in the yeah. situation. Forgiveness is not going to help them in this area, but hearing about shame is going to help them greatly. Yeah, for sure. And not just, you know, hearing about shame, but hearing about the solution of God's honor to that shame. And so, yeah, I think it's so interesting, even in that, you know, sort of situation, we might counsel a person um, and we would say, you know what, you were the victim. That was wrong. You didn't do anything, you know, you didn't do anything wrong, but you need to forgive give that other person. You need to kind of, um, you know, forgive and forget and then move on and things will be better. Well, it's interesting, you know, that that might help, that might be included as part of the process, but the issue is not simply forgiving the other person, but it's really finding a solution to that shame or that defilement um, or that sense of disgrace that has really come upon the person, that sense of uh, unworthiness that resulted from uh, that situation that needs to be addressed. Yeah, you and I, months ago, when we, and I found out you live in the Atlanta area, and we were talk, talking about getting together, which we could still do that sometime. We had a phone call together, I remember, and we talked about this kind of thing. Wow, really great car. And one of the things I remember talking about is that I was reading your book when this was going on. This is when it kind of hit home in many ways how this works. Because my wife had this sickness. It was really bad at the time. And 
she woke me up in the middle of the night and said, hey, can you please go to the kitchen and get some water or something like that for me? We were in the middle of the night, you know, if you had to ask me in the night, hey, would you like to just have to go up in the middle of the night and get water for your wife? I said, uh, I'd prefer to sleep if I could. But if she asked me for it, I'm certainly not going to say no. I take care of her and such. And so I go and I get the water and I'm coming back in my bedroom and she's my family and she just says, I'm sorry. And it kind of hits home because what am I going to say? Honey, you are forgiven for asking me to take care of you. No, she hasn't done a single thing wrong. Uh-huh. What she wants to know in that case isn't, do you let me off a hook for something I've done wrong? It's more like, do you see me as a burden at this point? Do you regret our relationship? Are we still good together? Mm-hmm. That mean, it's not the same kind of... It's not like she's sitting there thinking in honor, shame terms, but essentially that's what's going on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and make sure there's a sense of harmony preserved within the relationship. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Some, something else that we do with our gospel presentations, I think that is problematic, and Jackson Wu and others have kind of hit on this before, but we don't really tell the whole story. We can go straight from the Garden of Eden to the Cross of Christ and ignore uh, everything else in between. And I kind of listen to think, you know, um, the Old Testament was written for a reason. I don't know. Maybe we should pay attention to it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I wouldn't say maybe. I would say we should pay attention to it. Yes. For That's sure. my sarcasm I mean, kicking in. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, for sure. I mean, and the pro- the reason why that's such a problem is that when you just skip it, um, not only are you missing a lot of rich stories, uh, but really you're missing the context of the cross. You know, you're pulling it out of the context, and it it really, uh, you know, its meaning and its theology and its significant is going to be rooted in how God is fulfilling all of his promises to Israel in this person, in the, you know, the anointed king of Israel, who ironically and tragically is dying and being, you know, was put to death very shamefully and very disgracefully. And it's through that, that true glory and true victory and true honor is being released and being uh, brought to the world. And so it's, you know, the fulfillment of the covenant uh, is really what happened on the cross. So as we understand the Old Testament, we see that playing out. Um, or else, what we, if we don't understand the Old Testament context for the cross, those honor-shame dynamics, then we, inherit, then we automatically pull the cross into our own context and put it in our own cultural framework, which you know, is much more plausible or much more intuitive uh, to us. But unfortunately, our culture is, has quite a few values that are different than the biblical cultures, so then we kind of project a different meaning upon you know, the cross um, and what God was doing in Jesus. Yeah, I mean, you can understand the message of salvation still to an extent, believe, accept, and live according and such, but you're, you're kind sure. of just getting the shallow end of it instead of diving in real deep. I mean, this is what I encounter with so many atheists and such who say, why not just put some like, Jesus saves on the moon and such? Well, <laughs> because there was no context whatsoever as who is Jesus What's he saving me from? What does it mean to be saved? All of these questions yeah. were, were pulled up there. 
Uh huh. Yeah, and yeah, you're right. We can't can't just assume that people will have the biblical meaning of those concepts just because we use those words. Yeah. Yeah, that's you know you're kind of getting on you know that challenge of cross cultural dynamics, and this actually is um, kind of speaks about the, my fourth uh, coming book. You know, I've written two books: the 3D Gospel I wrote a couple years ago. It's a short, you know, short little uh, kind of primer into cultures and theology. Then my more recent one with InterVarsity Press is Ministering in Honor Shame Cultures. That one's about 250 pages, so it's more complete. But my next book um, is actually going to be the intro title in a series called The Honor Shame Paraphrase, in which I take, you know, different books of the Bible. I'm starting with First Peter and paraphrasing the books of the Bible um, into honor-shame language, because what happens is so often we forget those social nuances, or we can't read between the lines of Scripture. Because, you know, Nick, so often when we communicate, 90% of communication is nonverbal, like they say. Well, the only way you can pick up that nonverbal communication is if the, the sender and receiver, the speaker and the listener, share a similar culture. Well, unfortunately, we don't share the same culture as Scripture, and therefore there's a cultural gap. And so what I'm trying to do with the honor-shame paraphrase is to kind of bridge that gap. But, you know, there's lots of good technical books out there and scholarly monographs, but I'm trying to do it as kind of a paraphrase or a midrash. You know, Eugene Peterson, it's kind of like Eugene Peterson's The Message, um, where he was trying to translate the meaning of Scripture into contemporary English. Well, I'm trying to do a similar thing to help modern readers from a different culture understand these, you know, collectivistic, honor-shame, patron-client dynamics within Scripture. Um, So, the more I study Scripture, the more I realize that, you know, so often our issue is in the very words we use. You know, you brought up the issues of faith and grace. Well, you know, many scholars, uh, evangelicals, very credible New Testament scholars, are starting to ask, is the English word charis, or I'm sorry, is the English word grace a proper translation of the Greek word charis? And we assume that the meaning is one-to-one, that they have the same semantic domain. But I think we're starting to realize that our word grace in English comes with some baggage or comes with some misunderstandings that might not fully align with the biblical concepts. So, uh, I I gotta say, when I heard you talking about this book coming out about kind of like a paraphrase of honor and shame and such, I was kind of salivating a little bit and such. I mean, that, that's definitely one of, yeah, we're going to want to see you about you coming on the show again to talk about that one. <laughs> For sure, yeah, in due time, of course. In due time. But I like to remind everyone that you are listening right now to the Deeper Waters podcast. My guest is Jason Georges. He's the uh, co-author of the book Ministering in Honor Shame Cultures. But if you're here next week, we're going to have back on you. He was one of our first guests, and it's been a while since he's been on, but uh, got in touch with me again. His new book out, wants to talk about Greg Kokar is going to be our guest from Stand to Reason, talking about his book, The Story of Reality. But now, let's get back to uh, Jason George's talking about ministering in honor-shame cultures. Now, it, it could be that some people are looking and say, wait, you know, Jesus came in Jesus changes everything, and to an extent he does, of course. 
So maybe Jesus really just changed this whole honor-shame dynamic. Maybe he he did away with honor and shame. Maybe he didn't work in terms of honor and shaming. What would you think about that? <laughs> um, well, I, I think, uh, I mean, just to kind of put it in context, that'd be like saying, well, you know, Jesus kind of did away with Hebrew and Jesus just spoke English, you know, to all those first century Jews. Um <laughs> yeah, obviously that wasn't the case. Uh, he had to speak in honor shame terms because there was no other cultural operating system um, in which to communicate values. But understand that Jesus, in a very radical way, he doesn't he, he redefines the system. Jesus never rejected honor and shame, but he was consistently redefining the notions of honor and shame, so as to teach people what God's true. Uh, what God truly thought was honorable and what God was shameful. And so you have, um, you know, uh, Jesus is saying, you know, the people who die, people who die to themselves, the people who give everything away, the people who turn the other cheek, the people who lose everything. Um, these are the ones who will be truly honored and welcomed into my family. And so Jesus is overturning all the traditional status symbols of ancient uh, Judaism. It's something interesting also. Jesus doesn't consider it a bad thing to seek honor for yourself even. I mean, he talks about going to a banquet and he says, you know, when you go to a banquet and you're invited there, don't sit at the highest place. Because if you do, someone might say, you know, this uh, place was reserved for someone else. Please move to a lower spot in your experience. Shame. He says, but go and sit in the lower spot. And so that way, your guests can come to you, your host can come to you and say, friend, move to a better place, and you will be honored. I mean, the whole purpose of this was, isn't some great moral essay. Hey, if you want to get honor, here's a way to do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think so many of Jesus' teaching and his parables were showing people and uh, what true honor looks like and how they can get true honor. And so Jesus never gets away with it. You know, he never comes and poo-poos it and says, you know that honor thing, what are you Pharisees doing? That's really stupid. Your culture is immature. You need to shift to, you know, a more individualistic, guilt-oriented culture. Jesus never does that. He says, your honor, you're looking for honor. That's good. But you're doing, you're going about it completely in all the wrong ways. And so here's what it looks like to obtain true honor and true glory. And it's interesting, um, Jesus, uh, uh, or J- Jesus uh, in uh, the Gospel of John, he rebukes the Pharisees because they sought the honor that comes from man more than the honor that comes from God. And so if you think about it, their sin was not seeking the honor that comes from God. They were not seeking honor enough, or they were not seeking it appropriately. And so their hearts were misdirected uh, in that. And so that was their, their sin of unbelief, essentially. You know, that can really hit hard for us today, because Jesus is also not saying it's wrong for people to think well of you. It's wrong to seek honor and such. And that's especially hard for a lot of us who tend to be very ambitious with what we want to do and want to go out there and be the best that we can and have a good reputation and such. And the gospel nowhere condemns that. In fact, I think in many cases it would affirm it. I mean, try and have as good a reputation among unbelievers as you can, you know, provide you don't break the laws of God and such. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's one of the biggest challenges for Westerners is that we confuse honor with pride. And obviously, pride is a great sin. You know, C.S. Lewis called it the great sin. Um, and I think there is the difference of, you know, pride is about puffing yourself up or it's a pleasure that comes from your own achievements. It's, you know, your own hubris. You think you're great. Whereas honor is something that comes from other people because you have kind of embodied some moral ideals of the community or in the relationship, other people respect you or uh, esteem you. So pride is self-declared, but honor is granted from others. So I make that distinction because, you know, I'm assuming most of our hearers here on the podcast are Westerners and trying to figure that out. Okay, you know, is honor always pride? Obviously, they can um, overlap, but I think there is a key distinction. And all throughout Scripture, you know, pr- Good grief. We're only going to be with my guest for half an hour today and combining it all together. But I do want to remind you, like I said, this is a one-man effort. And meanwhile, aside from my sound editor, I'm going in here doing everything and such. And we would like to be able to improve the quality of the show even more so things like this don't ever happen again. One day, I would love to get to return to when we could have the show be live also. And you could call in and ask questions and speak to our guests. That could be off in the future. It depends on what you all do. So if you want to make a donation to Deeper Waters, please uh, go to deeperwatersapologetics.com. And there's a link on my side that says help support the work of Deeper Waters Christian Ministries. You've gone to the right place if you do that. That's the ministry of my in-laws, Mike and Debbie Lacona. You go there and you make your donation... And then you get in touch with me, or my wife, Ari, or Mike, or Debbie, and say, Hey, I made a donation. I want to go to Nick Peters. I want to go to Deeper Waters. But make sure we get your donation. It is tax deductible. And <clears throat> you can also buy ebooks on Amazon that I've written, such as The Apostles, A Creed for the Ages, The Apostles' Creed in Today's Christian, or ones I've co-written, like Defining Inerrancy, or Groundless, or God and Natural Disasters. And you can also go to uh, our jewelry store on there, ran by my friend Lena Cluster. And whatever you buy, 25% of that goes to Deeper Water. So, guys, you can buy something to make up for that screw-up that you recently did with a lady in your life. Or you can buy something to make up for that screw-up that I know you're going to make in the future. Uh, Jason, you're here with us. Uh, is there any organization you'd like to see people donate to? Uh, nothing particular comes to mind, Nick. Um, there is the website, honorshame.com, if people just want to purchase resources there that I have published. And they're all available on Amazon for you know a reasonable price. You can uh, go ahead and, uh, yeah, people can purchase from there. Yeah. Now, I would like to remind everyone that when these technical difficulties came about also, everything I, I said before blame 
for, okay? Sometimes it's technology. I, I don't know what happens. I'm not a technological genius or anything like that. But and my, my guest is an excellent guest, and he deserves the best that we can give. So we're going to try to do that as good as we can. Now, when he was on earlier, we were talking about his book, Ministering in Honor Shame Cultures, which is an excellent book you all need to get. But he's recently come out with another book that he started speaking about there, and that's the First Peter Paraphrase, Honor and Shame. What can you tell us about that? Yeah, Nick, um, what this uh, really came from is I was trying to uh, help people understand Scripture and its original sociocultural context. So one of the things that I've done um, in the past is to kind of maybe take a parable or a passage of Scripture and really paraphrase it or amplify it and uh, to help people understand kind of what's written between the lines. You know what they say, 90% of communication is nonverbal. And the reason why that works is because people share a similar culture. You know, I say something to you and it, it makes sense because we have a common culture. But what happens when we're reading another piece of literature and we don't share that common culture well, that 90% gets missed. So what I, um, you know, there's commentaries that do a good job explaining that. But let's be honest, commentaries are a pretty boring genre. You know, you know, I'm sure many of your listeners are more academic and love that sort of uh, genre. But for the most people, it's pretty dry. So what I try to do is like an amplification or a paraphrase of the text. And so you might remember in my book, uh, Ministering in Honor Shame Cultures, we did this for Matthew 5, the Beatitudes. And it's interesting, I've gotten so many positive comments about that uh, passage, and people are saying, oh, that's such a rich way of explaining it and doing it. And so First uh, Peter, I feel like, is probably the most honor-shame-saturated book in the New Testament, uh, right there with Romans and Revelation, perhaps. And so what I wanted to try to do is say, like, okay, instead of a, you know, a big, fat commentary, I wanted to try to help the masses understand these honor-shame dynamics. And so created this uh, paraphrase, uh, this amplification of First Peter. Um, and so the title is First Peter, an honor-shame paraphrase. And in this, we try to, um, you know, explain these dynamics by amplifying uh, some of the passages or Another kind of strategy uh, in doing this is recognizing that in English we have certain words, for example, the word grace. And so uh, we assume a certain meaning about that grace. You know, we've been debating the meaning of grace, especially in Protestant circles for the last 500 500 years. Um, But what we don't realize is that there's so much cultural baggage attached to the idea of grace and what a gift is, is that we actually misdefine the word grace, or we misdefine words like faith. And so what I've done is uh, actually tried to avoid those words, those kind of cliched words that are pretty much like dull knives. You know, they just really don't cut anything anymore um, because they're such cliched religious words. And so, um, you know, I define grace as God's benevolence or God's uh, gift that demands reciprocity. Um, Or the word faith I define as allegiance or loyalty or even faithfulness. And so I try to break up the um, kind of the, you know, the typical standard translations. Mm-hmm. Um, and hopefully the words that I have chosen try to evoke the honor, shame, collectivistic cultures that were inherent in the original, you know, Greek words in the New Testament that the apostles would have had in mind. I read what your work just within the past few hours, you're on the first Peter paraphrase, 
And until you mentioned, I hadn't even considered about the words grace and faith hadn't shown up that I remember at all. And it, it is a quite intriguing. Like, I mean, there is some, I should say, you do take some liberties here. For instance, you have a letter being sent sure. to Peter and then yes. a reply back. Yes, the book is not a literal translation, and I don't claim it is in any way. Um, it, it's much more of an amplification of the text, and it, it's it's more art than science. Right. right. Now, I, I was going to ask why you chose First Peter, but I think you already answered that. I, I think <laughs> I think something yeah, you can get get at with this is that, as I was being, as I was saying, so many of us were come to our churches and read this, and we'll hear a letter that's about, you know, here's how you should be a good Christian in your society and such, and we'll go home saying, uh, Peter's giving us a nice little pep talk to help us be good Christians, but if your letter is to and from beforehand, can I help give your mindset that, no, these were people who were hanging on Peter's words. And when the scroll came from Peter, they were probably eager to open, please, please see what he says. We need this desperately. Yeah, for sure. You know, uh, so as you mentioned, my paraphrase of First Peter is actually the kind of the meat. Um, but on each side of it, I have a uh, kind of a fictional letter from another Christian who was in Asia Minor who wrote to Peter. And so the first one kind of says, hey, Peter, this is our situation. And really that letter, it's completely fictional from a piece of historical, you know, fictional uh, historical fiction, but it really draws on a lot of the insights of New Testament scholars like David De Silva and John Eliot, who have really made a career of understanding the, the cultural background, historical situation of the of First Peter. And I try to explain how, in reality, what was going on is that these Christians were being marginalized by their uh, because of their faith, and they were being purposefully shamed uh, by the mainstream society because they were rejecting their associations, their family, the pagan uh, you know cults and the celebrations and the holidays. And so they were trying. So the mid- mainstream culture was trying to shame these Christians. Uh, into renouncing their faith or their loyalty to Jesus. Um, and it's really that situation is, gosh, how do we navigate all these difficult situations uh, when we find ourselves really oppressed and marginalized and suffered and uh, being slandered against? I was just saying, I'm thinking, wow, a time when Christians are slandered and mocked and persecuted because they're totally out of step with our culture. I mean, it, it's a good thing. Those are the good old days and such, and we're just so past that today, and that never happens anymore here in our Western world. Yeah, yeah, for sure. It is kind of foreign for our faith. I think part of it, you know, in the Western world, we are much more into physical comfort, and so, um, you know, the value of suffering um, isn't very highly regarded. So that's a, a factor as well. And actually, I think it is something we're getting much more used to in our war, I think, for instance, the homosexual movement has really brought this forth in survey. If you don't go along with a party line, where by God you're a, a bigot, for instance. I mean, I've seen the news lately that Bernie Sanders has said Christians shouldn't be allowed to hold political office because they think that uh, that Jesus is the only way to God. So it's happening. Yeah, for sure. I mean, you definitely see that. Um, you know, I wouldn't say there's kind of a 
you know, some people go really far and feel like there's a cultural war against Christians. Um, having lived in a Muslim country um, and then coming to America, you know, America, for the most part, uh, Christianity is still the default kind of uh, moral system um, or kind of the assumed values. But, you know, that is changing. And uh, I do expect in 10, 20 years that probably won't be the case anymore. Yeah, so let's talk about some of the things in the book here, but first be a paraphrase. One of the things that struck out to me when I read it in there, and this is one that so many Christians, I think, could read over in their Bible reading and not catch on to it at all, is the idea of Jesus, our crucified King. Why would that be so hard for people to believe back then? Yeah, the perhaps kind of an analogy that I can help uh, explain that is imagine uh, you save up money to take your wife on a nice date. It's your 10-year anniversary. You're prepared to go to some fancy, you know, five-star French restaurant. You're all dressed up, looking forward to it. And on your way to the restaurant, uh, you happen to, you know, as you're driving down the road, you see some roadkill. And it's a hot day, so it's all bloated and all four legs are in the air. Just a really gross sight, right? So you drive around it and try not to look at it. Well, then you go to the restaurant and you're looking forward to your meal. And all of a sudden, the chef brings out a plate. And on that plate is that very same roadkill that you saw on the road. Now, you, that's just disgusting, vile, grotesque, abnormal. Those two worlds don't belong together, right? And it, we know we keep those things separate. And uh, it, I think that's you know, kind of an analogy, when you say crucified Lord or crucified Messiah, those two words smash together two worlds that should not be together, that in people's minds, one was entirely shameful, one was entirely honorable at two different ends of the spectrum. And so um, the crucifixion itself was a Roman form of execution that they used specifically to punish and to make a spectacle out of the most vile uh, political rebels. And so there's many other forms of execution that the Romans could and did use, but they really saved the crucifixion for the people they wanted to make a, uh, a scandal out of or to really show how shameful uh, that they were. And so when someone was crucified, they were really considered as degraded, as worthless. And you see this, even the apostles themselves, as soon as their rabbi, you know, their Lord, whom they had followed for three years, was crucified, for them, that was the end. There's no conceivable way that a crucified person can really be of any possible benefit anymore. And even after resurrection appearances, they, they simply didn't get it. And so um, for their early apostles, uh, what they had to do is wrestle with, okay, how can someone, how could someone who is crucified actually become God's agent of salvation in the whole world? How can he become God's Messiah, the king who would rule over all of the nations? And so they went back to the Old Testament and found in passages like 53, the or Isaiah 53, this idea that there is a suffering servant and it was actually through his shame and through his, his suffering that God's kingdom would become real, realized. Mm-hmm. And so as they explained that message to people throughout the Greco-Roman world, they had the, it was a real oxymoron that they had to explain the fact that God's honor actually comes through shame or God's power comes through weakness. And you really, uh, Paul had to really explain that to the Corinthians in the first and second letter there because it was such an oxymoron to them. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, another part I noticed, <clears throat> and this is one relevant for me and my apologist friends, it's the uh, 1 Peter 3.15 is usually seen as where this is Peter telling us to do apologetics. This is the verse that tells us how it should be done and such. And of course, I'm not saying the Bible doesn't tell us to do that. Of course it does. But this verse, in your paraphrase, absolutely wasn't about that. Yeah. Um, you know, let me go ahead and read that passage there, kind of how I paraphrased that. and said, instead... Uh, Do not worry about your reputation that everyone else seeks. Instead, make Jesus the exalted and revered Lord in your hearts. And whenever neighbors scoff at you for hoping in Jesus, answer them as humans worthy of respect, not in a combative or condescending way. Mm Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, the idea there, it, it, it wasn't kind of like a, in a political de- debate in an academic setting with, you know, two people on stage, so to speak, and giving uh, intellectual answers back and forth. That wasn't the uh, context of First Peter 3.15. But, you know, it was all of a sudden when you're in the marketplace and someone starts mocking you and using curse words against you because of your new allegiance to Jesus, what? what how are you supposed to respond? How do you answer that sort of uh, social degradation or that sort of shame from the community? Mm-hmm. And then I'd like to go to one more part in there. In First Peter 4 at the start, you have a part, and I, I noticed it because you got some in parentheses where it talks about how Peter says, these people are going after you because they say you are turning your back on God. And it's like, it says, ironic, huh? <laughs> yeah, uh, it says, um, you know, they mock you for not joining in their activities that despise the name of God. Ironic, huh? And so this idea that, um, you know, it was their cultic worship um, that uh, is their cultic worship to pagan gods that they wanted the other Christians to come back to and to join back in, but for not doing that to the false gods, they were mocking them and demeaning them. Mm-hmm. What do you hope Christians who read this will get out of your paraphrase of First Peter? Yeah, my hope is that they would actually go back to, you know, the translation that they they like, you know, NIV, ESV, or whatever it is, or maybe straight from the Greek New Testament, and that they would be able to see that text with new eyes um, and really see it with the eyes through which the original audience of Peter most likely understood it. And so hopefully kind of, you know, like I said, they'd be able to read between the lines or capture that 90% that's not verbal, and they would understand better the cultural and social dynamics um, that are involved in, in the letter of Peter. Okay, now this is only on the Kindle right now. Are you planning on something larger for all scripture that's going to be in non-Kindle format? Yeah, it's available on Kindle and as a PDF uh, simply because it is fairly short. You know, it's uh, only about 25 pages, uh, if that, actually 22 pages. Um, and so it's, you know, cheap. It's only two ninety nine. In the future, yes, as I do uh, more and more books, I do hope to put them together in some sort of paperback version. And so my plan is to release a new book of the Bible uh, every three or four months. And so I have some Old Testament ones lined up next, uh, like Ruth, the Psalms, uh, Malachi as well. 
And then um, in the New Testament, I really want to focus on the parables of Jesus, some of the other epistles, including Romans as well. And so this is kind of my side job. Uh, my fa- you know, we have family, young kids uh, involved in ministry and different things. And so I'd love to be able to write this full time. Um, but I just often do this in my morning devotions because for me, it's a helpful way of kind of engaging scripture and processing it and, and slowing down. And so I try to just do a couple verses every day and then uh, put them together in this book. Okay. Well, the book, like he said, is available on Amazon Kindle right now for two nine nine. The other book we've been talking about so much is a ministering and honor shame cultures, biblical foundations, and practical essentials. If you care about honor and shame, this is a must read. <laughs> Paperback is fourteen ninety six. Kindle is thirteen forty nine. And Jason, do you have a? Uh, a blog, a website, email, a way people can get in touch with you if they want to find out more? Yeah, Nick, the best way is the website, honorshame.com. And uh, I spell that the American way, not the British way. So it's H-O-N-O-R-S-H-A-M-E.com, honorshame.com. There's lots of free resources. I blog weekly there, so you can subscribe to that. And then all the books um, as well are linked there, and I give lots of recommendation. And it's, the, the website, honorshame.com, is not just about my resources, but it really tries to collect all the best resources on the topic for both theologians and practitioners and missiologists. Hmm. And do you have any final words you'd like to leave today for the Deeper Waters audience? No, that is uh, great, Nick. I really do appreciate you taking time to bring this topic um, you know, to the attention of readers. I know I'm not the first guest you've talked to about this, but I really do think it's so important to understand not just scripture, but even our world events of what's going on in the world today. And as we live in America, and as more and more of our neighbors uh, are non-Western in terms of how they think and live, uh, it's just really becoming uh, essential to how we live in our multicultural world and essential to understand honor and shame in order to properly just love our neighbor. I agree entirely, and I, I really encourage listeners out there to start looking at honor and shame. It really brings a whole new light to the Bible and such. Um, Jason, it has been great. Again, I'm sorry about all the difficulties we've had, but it's been a great time with you, and I really hope we'll see you back here again. Absolutely, Nick. It's been my pleasure. I love the time. And I can remind everyone that next week we're going to have Seth Evorn on talking about composite quotations in the New Testament. For now, I'm Nick Peters, and I'm signing off. <laughs>